Father, we pray that you will illumine these words for us, not simply so that we might understand them, but that we might hear you speak through them and then respond in the power of the Spirit in whichever ways you require of us. For we long to bring you glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That reading from Mark 12 is quite topical, isn't it, actually? Paying taxes is an ongoing issue uh, in every age. But the key line, I think, in that reading from Mark chapter 12 is this. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're sincere, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. And that's the link between these two passages. We turn now back to Revelation chapter 2, page 243 in the Bibles, and pick up this call to truth, which is the subject of this week in this short series. This is the third in a series, and in case you haven't been part of it so far, Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation comprise seven letters written to seven churches, and they are vision, the vision is written of Jesus Christ. The words are Jesus Christ, they're given to John the Apostle, and then they are passed on. And there is evidence that this is also for us, the church today, or in whichever age. So in verse 3 of chapter 1 of the Revelation, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Thus far we've looked at the letter to Ephesus where they were reminded to return to their first love, not to do things out of duty but to do them out of love for the Lord. Secondly, we looked at the church in Smyrna and they were congratulated on holding firm but they are suffering and they are reminded be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life tough words for a church undergoing persecution and then we pick up this letter to the church in Pergamum Pergamum is, if you think we're doing a clockwise tour of the seven churches known in Asia Minor at the time. So we've gone another sort of 35 kilometres north to this place called Pergamum. Pergamum had become, over time, the regional capital of Asia Minor. It's the regional capital of the Roman Empire, And in verse 13, Jesus says through John, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. What's that a reference to? Is that a general comment about um, any that could have applied to any of these? No, actually, it's especially true of Pergamum. Pergamum is um, the centre, as I've said, of the Roman uh, Empire locally. It has an altar to Zeus in it. 
It has a 300-metre Acropolis hill, and that Acropolis is absolutely covered with temples. And um, one of those temples is to Asclepios, who's the Greek god of healing. So it's a bit like a pilgrim centre as well, a bit like Lourdes of the day. There's Zeus's altar. There's this uh, one to the god of healing. It's absolutely packed with gods and temples to all sorts of other gods. And because it's the Roman centre, it's also the centre of the cult of the emperor, the imperial cult. So it truly is Satan's throne. What does that mean? It just means that it's an absolute den of everything that's nothing to do with God. It, it is a, a, a God, God-less place in all sorts of senses of that word. It's a tough place, in other words, to be a follower of Jesus. And we looked at that last week, the church in Smyrna. I drew, um, I've drawn a, a, a parallel with Daniel, the time of Daniel in the lion's den. He's taken off to Babylon. He wants to continue to, to follow his God despite the emperor worship, the imperial cult that goes on there. And he gets into trouble because he continues to pray to his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's in that sense, Satan's throne, a very worldly place. And they are congratulated. Those who are living there are congratulated in verse 13 you're holding fast to my name even in the midst of all of this and the persecution that goes with it you are holding firm and he uh, uses the particular example in verse 13 of Antipas we do not know anything about Antipas really except what is written here but he was apparently a member of the church in Pergamum, and he, whether because a mob just got hold of him, or whether he was tried before the proconsul in a legitimate sort of a way, he has remained faithful even to death. Perhaps the first martyr, although we regard Stephen as the first martyr. Verse 13. Can you imagine living in a culture where you could be put to death because of your faith. One of the questions in the life group materials last week was, is there enough, if being a Christian was a criminal uh, activity, is there enough evidence to convict you that you are in your ordinary, everyday life? Let's continue going through. Let's unpack what the passage means and then we'll think what Jesus is saying. So he's congratulating them. They've done this wonderful thing, stayed true, even in Antipas' case anyway, to death. But, there's always a but, isn't there? Verse 14, I have a few things against you. 
And then there are two different situations mentioned. The first one is about Balak and Balaam, and it's a reference back to Numbers 25. Balaam was the prophet called by King Balak to inform him, to enlighten him, to guide him. But actually, the Lord uses Balaam in a way that he can't avoid. However, you need to look back at the the various prophecies, but at the very end, Balaam convinces the Israelites, contrary to God's word, that they are able legitimately to intermarry with those living around, the Assyrians. They end up behaving outside of God's best. They end up behaving against God's truth, against the doctrine. So that was back in Numbers 25, and the reference here is, well, perhaps that's still going on. So it ends up so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. Those are two specific activities as well that came out of that time in Numbers 25. Eating food, sacrifice to idols, and practicing fornication. Unfortunately, however distasteful it is to us, associated with temples was, were the temple prostitutes. And in whichever age, whether back in the time of Moses in Numbers 25, or in this time, in the first century AD, Temple prostitutes were a thing. And as part of your worship, if you were a man, you went with a prostitute. Satan's throne. Now, here in verse 15, he says also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, do you remember right at the beginning, In the first letter to the church in Ephesus, I talked about how we don't know who the Nicolaitans are. They're mentioned in chapter 2, verse 6 for the first time. But there's evidence that they behaved in an immoral way. There's not a great deal of information, but it's all rather sordid and tacky. So whether back in the time of Numbers, back at the time of Moses, or whether today, what Jesus is pointing out is that there's some very great shortcomings. They've held firm in their faith, but they are indulging in practices that are not Christian. They are turning to what have been historic sins in the life of the people of Israel. And so in verse 60, Jesus says, repent then. Not only say sorry, but give it up. Repent means turn around 180 degrees. Turn your face away from the way you've been behaving and turn it towards the Lord and ask him to direct you. And then, finally, the result of that Verse 17, to everyone who conquers, I will give. Now, there are two things mentioned here which are actually quite confusing. And each of these two books, both really good, the one that we're using for our uh, 
Bible study series and the one that John Stott has written on this have different views on what these things are mentioned in verse 17. So I'm just going to try and summarize the different ideas. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to everyone who conquers, one, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, back in Jeremiah's time, they were told to keep some of the manna in a gold jar that was held inside the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest was enabled to go into. It was part of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was to be a reminder of the way in which God had taken them and provided for those escaping from uh, slavery in Egypt through the desert, the wilderness. So it may be that that very precious thing will be shared. On the other hand, Jesus in John 6 is called the bread of life, isn't he? Jesus is the manna. So could it mean that we will inherit the bread of life? We will eat some of the bread of life. Then secondly, this white stone. I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, for those who think that the manna is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, The holy of holies, only the high priest goes there. It's the manna in the gold jar. Alongside that would have been the breastplate that the high priest wore, Aaron, for example, which was studded with precious stones. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's possible that the white stone, according to one of these books, is one of those stones. And it was a very precious thing, and it was used by the high priest to discern what God wanted. Maybe it was that. And that would put the two things uh, together as a very special privilege, which now is open to all of us. It's not open only to the high priest, because as we know, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and everyone has access to those precious holy things that hitherto only the high priest had access to. Sorry, I can see some of you glazing over. I'm honestly not going to go on too long. So that's one side. I don't know which is right. I've read about six different commentaries on this and they do not agree. The other side is to say, okay, everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, i.e. Jesus will give us himself. The bread, I am the bread of life. And along with that comes this white stone. Perhaps there is some archaeological evidence that stones were used as like an entry ticket to uh, imperial festivities, special events. And if you produced a stone, you were allowed in. It was your ticket well, maybe this white stone is your entry ticket into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God. And the name written on it might be Jesus, but it might also be your new name, my new name, which is, in my case, Princess Francis. I am a daughter of the King of Kings. Now, we could talk about that forever and it's not going to take us great deal, great, you know, very far. 
but it's entirely positive. Whatever we believe those things actually mean, there is something positive, rather like the crown of life that has already been referred to in one of the other letters. We don't know exactly what it is, but God himself will make himself known to us in a very intimate way. Okay. Now, if you look at the background of this, it's a battle, isn't it? It's presented as a battle. So verse 12, these are the words of him, Jesus, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Why does Jesus need a sharp two-edged sword? To pierce the complacency of the people living where Satan's throne is. Because some of them are happily doing utterly wrong things. They are not following the truth. And at the end, in verse 17, to everyone who conquers, it's a war image, isn't it? It's a war verb. This, Jesus is saying, is a battle. It truly is a battle. To be fought not only on the earthly plane, but in the heavenly realms as well. Because this, he's saying to these people in Pergamum, is where Satan's throne is. Okay. What else applies to us from this passage? I think that spiritual battle is still true. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, let's go back to it. Ephesians 6, verse 12, this is page 193, Paul says, our struggle, not just the church in Pergamum in the first century AD, but yours and my struggle, is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're naive if we are not aware that there is a spiritual battle going on for my soul and your soul and the souls of everybody. We're naive if we don't admit that. How can we withstand that? Because God has the victory in Jesus over death. We do not need to be worried. But it is a battle. So first thing, as it goes on in Ephesians to say, therefore take up the whole armour of God. You could read that for yourself. Ephesians, sorry, Ephesians, yes, 6. Remind yourself, do that each day, just as the people in Pergamum are reminded they need to. Also, this letter, verse 13, Jesus says through John, I know, I know. In other words, 
Jesus is there with them. He is witness to everything they go through and he is witness to everything you and I go through too. I know. He is present. We have already been told in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 12, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man. He knows he's with us in the situations we live through. He is concerned, not simply to pierce them, their complacency with the sharp two-edged sword, but to uphold them as well. It's truth tempered with love because he still holds the seven lampstands. He is there with them. So whatever you and I go through and whatever this church in Pergamon was going through, Jesus knows and knew then and he is with us and supporting us in it. Now, finally, what does this have to say to you and I today in this church of St. Andrew's Oxshot? As we've speculated before, what would God want to write to us as a church here? The question that I'm left with and that I was led to in my preparation is, to what extent might we have departed from Christian truth and begun to assimilate or identify with our prevailing culture? Mindset matters. How we think matters. Words matter, how we speak, what we say. Actions matter, how we behave matters. I sometimes despair. I look, for example, in an evening and at the television if I'm free, and I start watching something and I think, no, turn this off. Turn to another channel. Oh, no, turn this off. Our society, at least if it's what is reflected in our television programs, is not great. Extramarital sex, casual sex, drinking to excess, tax evasion, um, amassing and relying upon material things, all of those are represented in our television programs. Is that a picture of our society? Possibly, possibly not, but it's one picture of our society. Would it be true, therefore, to say that this is where Satan's throne is too? To what extent do we, as believers of followers of Jesus here in 2023, I nearly said 2022, to what extent have we assimilated to that culture and are no longer following the truth? I've lost count of the times when I have married couple, um, couples come to me for marriage preparation and they are already living together. I don't think that's God's truth. But it's a fairly outrageous thing to say that if you are going to be married, you should not live together before you get married. It wouldn't earn me many friends, but it might be the truth. It might be the right thing to say. 
What are we as a church saying about those sorts of issues? Drinking to excess, we may think, well, you know, I don't do that, but coming to church with a hangover or missing church because you've got a hangover is not an example of living the truth, is it? Do you know, once upon a time, the church supported slavery. Again, another hot topic. Because it was part of the prevailing culture. They'd lost sight of the truth of what God's word said. And the question, and I have no answers, but the question for all of us is to say, well, Lord, show us where we have assimilated to the culture and are no longer standing for the truth of the gospel. Where are we falling down? Where am I falling down? Pergamum was a very dark place in the literary sense. If you read Shakespeare, anything bad that's going to happen, it happens at night or when there's a fog. In that sense, Pergamum was a dark place. Perhaps Oxshot and Cobham are dark places too because they are ungodly in that sense. And we are called, again as Paul said, but this time in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, we are called as followers of Jesus to shine like stars in a crooked generation. Are we shining like stars? Or have we become crooked just like everybody else? Not because we're, it's not because we're better than anyone else that we're called to shine like stars. It's because we know the truth and the truth has set us free to serve the Lord. Not easy. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are tough words. As we think about the situation of the followers of Jesus in Pergamum, we, our hearts break for the way in which they were persecuted for following you rather than the imperial cult and the culture around them. Lord, we're afraid that we may have assimilated too much to the culture around us. We're sorry, we do repent, and we ask you, Father, to show us by your spirit where we need to repent, where we need to change, or where we need to stand firmer in the truth. We ask in humility that you will show us these things, and then by your spirit give us courage and strength to rectify them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.